This is In the Zone, your home for Salina Sports Talk. High school sports, Kansas Wesleyan and Bethany, KU, K-State, and Wichita State. Wait, is there anything these guys don't cover? You're in the zone. In the Zone on Sports Radio 1150 KSAL, welcome into another edition of our program. Today is Tuesday, June 7th. It's Smoky Hill River Festival week. He's Jackson Schneider. I'm James Westling. Jackson, how was the Jackson Brown concert last night that you took in here in downtown Salina with your mom? Did you guys have a nice date night at the Stiefel? <laughs> yeah, it was actually really cool. I, I like I've listened to Jackson Brown because of my mom really my whole life and it was cool to say you know that i've now seen a really iconic musician in person and and to do that here in salina is always really cool and i got to kind of uh just experience the stiefel for the first time i've always driven past it but this was the first time i'd seen a concert in there and it's a really cool little venue and it was just it was a really nice evening uh for my first concert in salina and i'm definitely going to be going back here soon there's some more pretty cool acts coming in the near future yeah the stiefel is a great venue and i've been to several concerts there but and this isn't to say that the concerts aren't good because they are always phenomenal but i really really enjoy the stand-up comedians that they bring to town i saw jim gaffigan several years ago uh they've got john christ coming to salina here i think later on this month he's kind of a uh, a big time comedian so their comedy shows it is the absolute perfect venue for stand-up comedy jim gaffigan was phenomenal and that's that's something that I would really enjoy. Actually, I've seen I guess you could call it stand-up comedy, but I saw Jeff uh, Jeff Dunham. Yeah. But it was at the the Tony's Pizza Event Center, not the Stiefel. Uh, but that was a really cool event, and I'm sure it would have been really cool at the Stiefel too. But there were a, a lot of people inside the Tony's Pizza Event Center, from what I remember from that, and it was really cool. But I love I love stand up comedy. That's one of my favorite things. I I listen to well, I used to. I had Sirius Radio and they have all the comedy channels that's just com- constant like stand up comedians and different jokes and stuff. And I am a huge fan of that stuff. Did you ever you're probably too young, but do you know who Dane Cook is? Did you ever get into Dane Cook? I, I do know who Dane Cook is, and I remember he had some really big like comedy specials for a while, and was a really big deal. Um, but I don't remember a lot of them like specifically. Sure. So he got his start in stand-up comedy kind of at a, an older age compared to where a lot of guys normally start. He was in his mid to late 30s when he really blew up. And for a while there, I mean, he was he was the dude when it came to just comedy. He was starring in movies. But then he really kind of got blacklisted from the industry because he was accused of plagiarizing and stealing some jokes from some pretty well-known comedians, including Louis C.K. But then after the fact, like 10 years later, all these comedians came to his defense and said that he really didn't steal their jokes verbatim and that what he did was no different than what a lot of stand-up comedians do. But by the time that happened, the damage had been done. And so Dane Cook has kind of been trying to make a comeback for the last probably close to 20 years now. I saw him, I want to say, a little over 10 years ago. So I guess it'd be less than 20 because I saw him down in Wichita. And really, 
that was one of his last big shows. He kind of fell off after that. But random fun fact of the day, I'm a huge Dane Cook fan. I like it. I'm, I'm, my favorite comedian is Burt Kreischer. Uh, who is hilarious. He, his big thing is the I'm the machine where he tells a story when he went to Russia for a college class and ended up like getting intertwined with the Russian mafia. It's a really funny story. And it's kind of like he'll add it to every special that he does because people love it. Uh, but he's got a really good podcast uh, with uh, Tom Segura, who's another really big comedian that uh, you, you should check it out. I think it'd be right up your alley, James. I like it. Well, hey, speaking of mafia, um, the golf world has been shook today because a lot of professional golfers, uh, Phil Mickelson has been in the news in regards to this topic, but today it's Dustin Johnson who has officially quit the PGA Tour for the new Saudi-backed Live LIV Golf Tour uh, they just launched their Twitter account, coincidentally enough, today, right after Dustin Johnson made his big announcement. He's going to get a new contract over $100 million, which is way more than he's made in terms of actually playing golf. The guy makes way more than that in endorsements, but in terms of actually on the tour, this is unseen money in the golf world, and that's our lead story today. We'll have some local stuff later on. We're going to go over our top three sporting events so far from 2022. But Jackson, shed a little more light on what's happening in the golf world. Well, right now, it's just kind of like the the golf framework that we've known for a long time is kind of just shaking because a lot of pretty big-name golfers that had been playing and competing uh, at high levels on the PGA tour have, have made the jump over to this, this LIV golf um, league, I guess you could call it. And, and a lot of them are, are removing themselves completely from the PGA tour. Like Dustin Johnson earlier today, uh, he's joined a lot of other golfers by officially resigning from the PGA tour effective immediately. Uh, and he plans uh, to, to just play in the LIV golf events moving forward. And there's um, other stories saying like that the U.S. Open is is okay with players that are, are playing in the Saudi-backed LIV. Like they're, they're able to still play in the U.S. Open if they want to, um, which is coming up here in a couple of weeks, I think. Um, but there are several that have said that they don't even want to do that. They're just going to... Uh, go to the LIV and they're taking what I would consider like really big contracts to do so. I think uh, Dustin Johnson's contract was something over a hundred million dollars. I don't know the exact number, but like that's a, a substantial amount of guaranteed money. And then there's huge purses in a lot of these tournaments uh, from the Saudi backed league on top of it. So there's a lot of, of I guess, uh, blowback that these golfers are facing from fans and, and other spokespeople involved with the PGA about, like, loyalty and, and you know, chasing all the paychecks and whatnot. And I, I just find it very interesting because if, if we compared it to, like, free agency in, like, the NFL or, or even soccer might be a better uh, comparison because there are so many high-level leagues – if, if a player's contract is up and they're playing in, like, England for a good sum of money, but a team in France wants to offer them even more, there's no hard feelings there. It's just the the nature of the business. So I don't understand why 
Uh, there's so many people in the golf world that are upset with some of these players uh, who, who are finding a better financial opportunity to go play elsewhere. I think the reason why people are so upset is the political aspect of it. Saudi Arabia, there are a lot of media pundits that are saying that, you know, it's a murderous and illegitimate regime, really, and that Saudi Arabia, in a way, is bribing these players to support that with these huge contracts. I don't really want to get political. Um, These guys, I don't think, want to get political either. I don't think Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson have uh, any skin in the game when it comes to that. But the money talks, and it's a different type of league just in terms of the format. Okay, it's going to be 12 teams. I mean, it is a professional sports league where there's going to be teams. They're going to have 48 players, 54 holes. It's going to be a snake draft with 36 picks. Uh, They're doing things differently is what it says in their Twitter bio and one of the two tweets that they've had today, this golf league. I mean, this is pretty forward thinking just in terms of not only the money, but also how this league is actually going to operate just on the surface. Yeah, it is very different. And I'm intrigued to see kind of how it plays out because I don't fully understand the, I guess the, the uh, team aspect just yet, because it's, it's kind of no pun intended, a foreign concept. Uh, But I'm, I'm intrigued. I'll be watching from afar. I'm not I'm not a very big time golf fan. I'm very casual in following the sport when it when it comes to just like watching it occasionally on TV. Like I'll watch some of the majors and stuff like that. And I'll, if it's on TV, I'll kind of stop and watch for maybe a minute or two. Check the leaderboard, see that kind of thing. But with this being an interesting twist, I mean, I'll certainly just check it out at least. And and it seems like a lot of these golfers might be doing the same. You know, it's not a permanent fix. And I'm sure the PGA would welcome some of these high high level golfers back in a while if they get to this Saudi league and they find out it's not what they're looking for. It's not what they want to be in. You know, it's it's just really interesting to see how this is all kind of unfolding with with the repercussions that may follow because the you know the pga has kicked around the idea of saying that these players may not be able to come back but there have been a lot of other golfers who aren't even involved in this saudi league saying that that's too harsh and that they shouldn't be kicked off pga tour events and things like that so it's just going to be interesting to kind of see the jousting match that goes on between the players from the PGA and the LIV Golf and, and just the PGA and how they handle it as well. Reading a tweet now, do you know who Victor uh, Hovland is, the 24-year-old from Oklahoma State? Yes. Yes, I do. Did he just win a big tournament? Uh, yeah, I think he might have won one of the major i'm like i said i'm not a huge follower of golf but he's been playing really well lately i know that yeah so i don't know the legitimacy of this tweet but it's funny either way it says that he has not joined the saudi golf league but that's because he hadn't heard of it until yesterday he received an email offering him a nine-figure sum a few months ago but he thought it was one of those saudi arabian prince phishing scams so he sent it right to junk (laughs) 
maybe really that funny. maybe that happened. Maybe it didn't. Who knows? But uh, they reportedly offered Phil Mickelson over two hundred million dollars. So uh, the the money, we'll see how far it actually goes in terms of professional golf. All right, let's take a break and come back and kind of go over our top with the school year out. You know, Jackson, I like this topic. We're heading into the summer months. You asked me earlier today to come up with my top three favorite sporting events so far in 2022. So you can kick that off coming up next on In the Zone. of In the Zones is powered by Hometown Outdoor Power in McPherson, Salina, and Minneapolis. Make sure your mowers are ready for this mowing season and save big money with their winter service program. Call to set your appointment today or visit hometownoutdoorpower.com. He's Jackson Schneider. I'm James Westling, and we are going over our top three events. Each of us have three picked out. I have a couple of receiving votes events, if you will, of 2022. So, Jackson, this is a great topic. How'd you come up with this? Well, it's June, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we're in the sixth month. And our sports calendar is a little bit lighter these days, you know. Uh, So I felt like this is a good time to kind of sit back and reflect on what has, has taken place in the sporting calendar, at least so far, because... Although it's only June, there's been a lot that's happened. And I feel like, you know, we might uncover some things that that we remember or might not remember so well and could lead to some fun, you know, conversation, banter, all that fun stuff. Okay. Why don't you get us started? What is, uh, mine's not really in any particular order. I just picked my favorite three. So what is one of your favorite three events so far this year? And, and just to be clear, when we say events, it it doesn't have to be like a game or like the Super Bowl or whatever. Like I'm talking just like sporting stories. Okay. Like if it was a big game, that's cool. If it was just a big sports story, that's cool. Because I'm going to lead it off with the whole Calvin Ridley situation and how he was uh, suspended earlier this year uh, for his being involved in gambling while he was away uh, for his like personal leave that he took uh last season I I felt like that's a wild story especially considering the fact now that uh sports betting is way more widely accepted these days than it has been ever before and it's even become legal here in the state of Kansas and so to me this is a huge storyline because uh it, it also brought into my thoughts when we talked about the MLB situation where those players gotten in the big fight about uh, their fantasy football league and how you had thoughts about how if it was fantasy baseball how would the league respond because it's it's a different sport so it seems like it's okay but uh, Calvin Ridley bet on NFL games games that he wasn't playing in or wasn't involved in uh, but the NFL you know responded pretty swiftly by suspending him for this entire next season. Did you see that there's going to be, I don't know if it's a 30 for 30, but there's going to be a documentary on Tim Donahue, the former NBA official that was betting on games and essentially fixing them? I I did see uh, a little bit about it. I don't know too much about what it's going to entail, but I did see some tweets kind of about that whole story and and that they had been working on one. And I know Tim Tim Donahue, however you say his last name, sorry, has been kind of going on a lot of podcasts lately and kind of telling his his 
story. Like, he's served his time. He's passed that all now. He's retired from officiating and kind of wouldn't be able to return even if he wanted to. But he's been pretty open about that whole situation. So it'll be interesting to see kind of uh, what all comes out from that. I'll, I'll definitely be tuning in. Yeah, me too. I think that's going to be awesome because I remember that really well. It really shook the entire sports landscape back then. All right, great topic. I think you're going to kind of be going the more stories angle, and mine's probably more event angle, which will be good because we'll have a lot of different things here. Uh, for me, it's the AFC divisional round game, the Chiefs and the Bills. Again, I said this is in no particular order, but I think this one's going to be tough to top. Chiefs won in overtime 42-36, to but the end of the fourth quarter, in the final minute 54, there were 25 combined points scored between the two teams. It was 26-21 to at the two-minute mark, and it ended 42-36. to Gabriel Davis was just ridiculous that game for the Bills. He caught both of their touchdown passes in the final two minutes. But ultimately, it was the Chiefs that prevailed. They had almost 600 yards of total offense. If you like offense, you loved this game. It helps that the Chiefs were in it and that they won, but I think it'd probably be towards the top of my list if it was two other teams playing just because of how it played out. And really, I think in some ways, we'll end up revolutionizing how the NFL views overtime because it was clear in that game that whoever won the coin toss was going to win, and fortunately, it was the Chiefs. Yeah, I'm. I think this is really, really good in terms of like the top stories or games because it was such an incredible game, and I think you're exactly right that a lot has come from it because several NFL teams have now been vocal about wanting to try and change the the NFL's overtime format. And then I remember the outcry from Chiefs fans about how the same thing happened to them back in, what, 2018, 2019? I can't even remember when the Chiefs lost at home in the AFC Championship to, to the Patriots in the same situation where whoever was going to get the ball first in overtime was definitely going to win. And the Chiefs tried to change the, the, the rule then and there. And basically the entire NFL said, go cry you know, to someone who cares. And then when the, the tide got flipped to the Chiefs' side of things, that's where things started to change. And it's been really interesting to see how, how those pieces have moved since uh, because it's looking like we're, we're trending for a very different overtime format. Hey, probably in the next couple of years. I know they've tweaked it already for this coming season, uh, just that in, in the playoffs at least, I think both teams are going to get a, a go at it regardless, uh, but it's going to stay the same for the regular season. Yeah, I think so, too. All right, what's your second storyline slash event so far of 2022? I want to talk about March Madness. It was awesome because it was it was like the March Madness of old. You know, last year was great because we got it back, but it was not the same, like, feel with not really any fans, and it was all played in Indianapolis, and it was uh, – it just wasn't – the same. It felt like diet March Madness, and there were still plenty of great games and huge upsets and all that stuff. But this year's March Madness was so great just because I I felt like I appreciated it that much more to have fans back and packed arenas and huge venues. And then, of course, you have the regular chaos and the upsets and like the St. Peter's and, and all that stuff. And then, of course, Kansas ends up winning it all. Uh, which is a really, really cool thing for me. And I know you probably didn't love it as much as I did, James, but I felt like this March Madness 
was just so great for all of those reasons. Phenomenal choice. I had second on my list the national championship game. So right up your alley, KU in North Carolina, especially with how it unfolded. And North Carolina had that big 20-point lead or whatever it was at halftime. KU came storming back like they did in multiple games. Remember, they did it in the Elite Eight against Miami. Mm -hmm. They had to fend off a pesky Creighton team in the second round. If you're a KU fan, I don't know that there will ever be a March Madness that will top not only the fact that KU won the whole thing, but how they won it as well. And then when you factor in all the upsets, all the Cinderella's, the Blue Bloods at the end. I mean, it was as perfect as it could ever get. Yeah, it was it was so awesome. And I'm I'm biased and obviously being a KU grad, like I feel like it means more because KU obviously won. But to do it this year and in the fashion that they did it, it was is to me it just was the cherry on top of what was an incredible uh, March Madness as always, but just even more because it was the first true year back to normal, so to speak. And then to be able to enjoy it the way that I got to enjoy it, I it was just so awesome. And I had a blast with it. And I, and I even, for me, the personal enjoyment got started because I watched the first two rounds when I was in Vegas. And what's better than March Madness when you're, you're hanging out in Las Vegas, Nevada? Right. All right, so since you went March Madness, I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with the NFL offseason free agency and specifically the Chiefs trading Tyreek Hill because we were completely blindsided by that. There was no rumors or rumblings or anything that Tyreek Hill was on the trade block and the Chiefs out of nowhere trade him to the Miami Dolphins. The Dolphins give him a four-year, $120 million extension with 72 million uh, dollars guaranteed and 52 million of that at signing it made hill the highest paid wide receiver in nfl history but it wasn't just tyreek hill you saw Devontae adams get traded to the las vegas raiders i think five of the top seven receivers from a season ago are going to have new homes at least statistically this season it has just been a wild nfl offseason and then especially when you factor in just the afc west all the moves the chargers made the broncos going out and finding uh their quarterback and russell wilson as i noted the raiders getting Devontae adams and then the chiefs really trying to not really rebuild but reload if you will through mostly the draft. I think it was just a really wild NFL free agency that I can never remember anything like this in my lifetime. And then you top that all off with Tom Brady deciding yeah. after like a month that he didn't want to actually retire. And he comes back because of the free agency money that was being thrown around. He thought, hey, I can still earn a really good chunk of change, so I'll come back and I'll play for the, the Buccaneers and see what happens. And he, you know... He, we all thought he was done. We thought he had hung it up. One of the best ever uh, to play the game was just going to be done after losing in the playoffs and falling short of another, what would it have been, his seventh or eighth Super Bowl title. So for him to come back as well, that makes it an even crazier NFL offseason. Yeah, for sure. Tom Brady, just all the Tom Brady stuff in general, the rumors about him maybe going to Miami and then that falling through, and that's why he came out of retirement and came back to the Bucks, but he didn't like Bruce Arians, and so that's why the Bucks have a new coach. Just everything surrounding Tom Brady. There was never a dull moment. All right, what's your third uh, topic? My, my last one is another one that's kind of local, so it is a little bit 
uh, I feel like I have a bias to mine, which is fine because it's my opinion and it's it's our show, so we can do it however we want. But um, I'm gonna go with the Texas Bowl, K State playing LSU and and really taking it to them. But I felt like this football season for K-State especially, there were so many opportunities for them to, to have really taken a step forward. And then with the injuries to Skylar Thompson, they just they were never able to really get over the hump and, and, and kind of take the next step to being a really good team. So the bowl game was even more important to, to kind of put a, a stamp on this season that it, it was a still a really good year. And, and that, you know, Skylar Thompson was going to finish his career with a, a high note against a marquee program. And, and I know LSU was dealing with guys that had transferred or been injured, and, and they were kind of a shell of the team that they actually were for a good chunk of the season. Uh, but for K-State to just take care of business and really dominate LSU the way that they did to, to be the final bowl game before the national championship was just a really cool way to finish my viewing experience of college football this season back on January the 4th. So very, very early in this year was already what I feel will be a high point until football season comes back because of how how much fun that game was. Because K-State was so dominant and it, it kind of helped to be a springboard to now where K-State is widely thought of to be one of you know, the dark horses potentially in the Big 12 conference and has all these talented guys returning and, and Skylar Thompson's passing the torch off to Adrian Martinez now who's transferring in and there's still all these these positive signs. But it really, to me, all points back to the, the trampoline, which was the Texas Bowl. Great choice, great points. I agree with all of them. And you hit the nail on the head. The Athletic, Athlon Sports, Phil Steele, Sports Illustrated have all noted that if Adrian Martinez stays healthy, and that's the biggest question they seem to think, K-State could be a contender for a Big 12 championship this year on the gridiron. And Adrian Martinez starting to throw a little bit. He had surgery on a torn labrum. I've actually had a torn labrum. It is a gnarly injury. It takes how, a long how time. How you tear your labrum, James? Uh, I tore my labrum lifting weights, Okay. Thought wow, I, big gym guy. I forgot right? about like that. I thought, I, I thought I could lift the big boy weights. Okay, I can't. I can't. Uh, I have thrown in the towel since. And the weird thing <laughs> was, so the weird thing was, I remember when it happened. And I just remember kind of thinking, like, that felt weird. But it wasn't like an excruciating, like, when you roll your ankle and it's immediate pain. It was just a weird kind of pop. And then, over time, I had a cyst that developed in that same area. And I remember I went and played basketball, and the cyst had gotten so big that it was impending my, impeding, I should say, my movement of my arm. Like, I went to shoot the basketball, and it went like two feet. Like, I could barely get it beyond my body. So I went in to get this cyst removed, but because the cyst was there, they couldn't see the tear in the labrum. So I thought I was going in for what was just going to be an easy in-and-out surgery. Turns out I was out for like three months in a sling. It was awful. And like I said, it is, it's a pretty nasty injury. So Adrian Martinez, I, I'm, I, is it his throwing shoulder? I can't remember. It, I think it is. It is. Yeah. But, uh, but he's every time that uh, Chris Kleiman has been available to the media, he has had nothing but positive things to say about his development and his demeanor through the process of healing. And, and it's sounding like, by about fall practice, he should be about full go, which is 
all you can hope for for K-State. I mean, you don't need him to push it now. You're not going to want to risk it by throwing a football in, in early Ju- June, right? Like Or July. You want him healthy by August. That's when you're really pointing to wanting him to be all systems go and, and to really be able to jump into practice and help this team continue to get better and, and, and build off of what was a really exciting end to last year and what's a really high potential start to this coming season with some of the, the games on the schedule. I mean, Missouri's a big-name team. You get them in your own house week two, a chance to beat an SEC team, a former rival, and really kind of cement yourself as here as a program under Chris Kleiman. They've been building for it for three-plus years now, and I think this might be the time where things start to really take a turn forward. Well, and when you look at K-State's play calling, at least in the past, I mean, a, a torn it's in a, a torn labrum is in a spot that, assuming the surgery was done from the best doctors in the state or in the area, I'm sure they did a phenomenal job. You know, it's an injury that, that once it's healed – I mean, it shouldn't really bother him anymore. So it's just going through the rehab process, which is probably pretty gnarly, which is what he's doing now. But by the time the season rolls around, he should be, like you said, fully healed. And K-State, I mean, it's not like they're really throwing a lot of bombs down the field. They're more of a kind of dink and dunk type of offense, and they rely a lot on the ground game, which it shouldn't affect him there at all. And that's really where he excels. So I hey, like I it. have a, a quick ahead. note for you. Sorry to cut you off a bit, but it's related to K-State. But I saw a tweet a little bit ago, and I'm glad I, I thought of this before we jumped off K-State football's topic here for now. But the Wildcats added a, a piece to their football schedule of the future. And in 2027, it's crazy that we're scheduling five, game, or five years out uh, at this point. But in 2027... K-State's going to welcome Georgia Southern to Bill Snyder Family Stadium. That's official <laughs> via the Twitters earlier today. Okay, well that's 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 cool. Not going to lie, when you <laughs> when you when you hyped it, I thought you were just going to stop at Georgia. I thought you were going to say Kansas State and Georgia, <laughs> and then you threw Southern on the back end. But I'm still I'm here for it. I like it. It's it's a fun name. Like uh, to me. I like it when you see teams you don't normally see. Like, it's cool to renew the rivalry with Missouri, but I think that for me, the like from the fandom standpoint, the game I'm probably the most excited about is the fact that K-State's playing Tulane for the next two years. I think that's really cool. And, and you're getting a team that I don't think K-State has ever played before in 2027 now. Uh, also, I think in 2025 and 2026, K-State's going to have a home-and-home home with Washington State, which they, I don't think, have really ever played, at least in my lifetime. So I'm kind of a schedule nerd in that. I want some new matchups. Well, then you're going to love this. Next year, K-State plays at Missouri, which, like you said, is going to be fun. And then in 2024, K-State plays at Tulane, road trip, New Orleans, and then they host Arizona at Bill Snyder Family Stadium. That's a team that you don't normally see K-State play. And then in 2025, K-State's going to go at Arizona, and they're going to host Army. How sweet is that? Yeah, it's the schedule, if you look at that far in advance, it kicks but like it is so cool some of the names you're going to start to cycle in there for K-State. I remember like looking back in the past, I think K-State had uh they bought themselves out of that series with Oregon a mm-hmm. long time ago. They were supposed to play a home and home against Oregon, 
but the program wasn't really in a place where that that was a good decision because it was shortly after Ron Prince, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, but instead, they ended up playing that home and home with UCLA, which was really cool at the time. And and like in the past couple of years, K State's non-conference schedule hasn't really been that cool. Like last year, they played Stanford. And that was the biggest non-conference game, from my memory, that K-State's played in the last handful of years, at least since Chris Kleiman has been around. So at least K-State's starting to play some some bigger-name, fun schools. And I guess now that I'm talking about this, K-State did play Vanderbilt. Yep. But that didn't go particularly well. Now did it? No. So they're going to play Washington State, as you noted, in like 27 and 28. And then they're going to play Colorado in... 28-29, somewhere around there, home and home. K-State has opponents on their schedule all the way out to 2031. They've got a home and home with Rutgers, which will take place in 2030 and 2031. It's weird to think about. That, yeah, why are we scheduling games that far out? I don't, I don't understand. Know. I don't know. I'd love to see the contract. I'd love to see what the rate is for a game in 2031. How much inflation's factored into that? Who knows? All right, that was a good segment. Uh, coming up next, we'll talk more sports here on In the Zone. Wrapping up the program here on In the Zone on Sports Radio 1150 KSAL. Jackson, I've gone down a FBSSchedules.com rabbit hole because they do such a great job of laying out all the future football schedules. We talked about how K-State looks in the future. KU's got a tough schedule this year. They play Houston and Duke. And then next year, it doesn't get any easier because they play Missouri State in their opener, who is no joke at the FCS level. They're coached by Bobby Petrino. Their lead running back this year is going to be Jacadia Wright, who just transferred from K-State. Uh, and then they play Illinois and Houston next year in the non-conference. So KU's got some big names coming up on their schedule as well. Yeah, I, the thing that I was looking at is... is how it kind of evens out a little bit. Like, from this year, KU starts out and has to go, like, they, they do Tennessee Tech at home for their non-con, and then they go at West Virginia and at Houston before coming home for Duke to finish up the uh, non-conference schedule. So having those road the road non-cons is never easy, especially for a program that's trying to get better like KU. But next year, they get both Houston and Illinois at home. And then Missouri State, who's no walkover, at least that's still a home game also. Uh, so that kind of it flips the ball back in their court a little bit. But just to kind of see how the schedule is all organized. But uh, then you get Southern Illinois, and then you have to go to Champaign in 2024. Uh, but KU's schedule gets pretty interesting once you get to 2025 and they bring Missouri back into the fold and have to go to Columbia for the renewal of that rivalry in 2025, but they also get Fresno State at home that year. The thing that's interesting to me is KU and K-State have some common non-conference opponents when you look four or five years out. KU and K-State both have Missouri in the near future-ish, I would say, in a home and away, and KU is going to play Washington State in a home and away uh, as well. And K-State's got Washington State on their schedule. So I think Washington State does KU 26 and 27, and then K-State does Washington State 28 and 29. So 
Uh, just an inter- interesting nugget there that I found. And then KU's got Fresno State on their schedule in 2025. Always fun to play the Bulldogs. That'll be a tough game for KU. Um, so, yeah, KU's got uh, Louisiana Tech. They're going to play a home-and-home and and actually play at Louisiana Tech in 2028. And then KU is going to play Virginia as well. Go ahead. I want to talk about that. I love when Power 5 schools schedule these home-and-homes with group of five teams, especially nowadays, because it all seems to be money-driven. But it's so cool when you get a big conference team to go to like Louisiana Tech. I remember a couple of years ago, Oklahoma State did a home and home with Central Michigan and played at Central Michigan one year. And I think they might have gotten beaten or, or played them really close. I th- actually, you know what? They lost to Central Michigan in Stillwater. Yeah, on the Hill the Mary. Next- yeah, I remember that. But then I think that the next year they played at Central Michigan and beat them. But I love stuff like this. And I was telling you off air, I went. When I was just a little kid, I went with my dad when K-State played at Marshall. And I remember a few years ago as well, K-State played at UTSA as well. Like I love when you get those bigger programs to the smaller stadiums because that is the biggest deal for schools that size because they don't get those marquee programs at places like that. I remember also a couple years ago, Miami played at Appalachian State, and it was like the biggest crowd they had ever had, and they had to wheel in like – even more temporary seating to to fill more seats in in Boone, North Carolina. So it's just I love stuff like that, and I'm such a nerd, and I'm not even sorry about it. No, I'm with you. And K State football, you know, I can think back to the '90s. K State won at Cincinnati in '94 on a last second lob to Kevin Lockett. K State Michael Bishop's K State debut was actually a road game at Northern Illinois, and wasn't even on TV. I remember sitting in front of the radio with my dad. We had no idea how good Northern Illinois was. We had no idea who this Michael Bishop guy was. We just knew the hype. And he came in, and K-State won like 41-7. to And he only completed seven or eight passes, but he had 250-some yards. And you could just tell Greg Sharp was on the call back then, just going on about how good Michael Bishop was. And then K-State, as you noted, at UTSA. As a fan, I'm always terrified of those games because typically, historically, they don't work out very well for the Power 5 schools. Just look at Oklahoma State, who went on the road this past season and had, I think they beat Boise State, but it was super close. They should have lost that game. Yeah, there's been a lot of really fun ones, and I know uh, some of these these now soon-to-be Power Conference members have had games like that but I I remember like Cincinnati has been playing Notre Dame a lot lately and they went to Notre Dame this past year and won Uh, but I think Notre Dame goes to Cincinnati in the very near future to kind of like flip that back but I I love it because it, it does it's never easy like these are good teams and you play on the road it's so hard to win on the road regardless of where you're playing it's just it's it's what makes college football so great. Yeah, there's going to be some really interesting non-conference games this season, actually. Uh, Week one, you get Tennessee at Pitt. You know, Pitt will be ranked. Tennessee will be ranked. Tennessee is supposed to have one of their better teams in many, many years. Uh, Cincinnati at Arkansas is on September 3rd. That's week one. What will Cincinnati look like this year? What will Arkansas look like uh, after what they did last year but lost Trey Burks to the NFL draft? And then you've got... uh, Let's see, Arkansas plays at BYU. 
That'll be an interesting game. TCU plays at SMU. SMU is supposed to be really good this year. So uh, Baylor also plays at BYU. You've got North Carolina that's playing at Appalachian State this year, September 3rd. The post-Sam Howell era for North Carolina. That'll be a fun game as well. So some really good matchups. And actually, according to Sports Illustrated, the number 22 best non-conference matchup this year is Missouri at K-State. That matchup makes the top 25 in terms of non-conference games. Well, that is pretty good for me. I, I'm excited for it. And I'm diving into this schedule. You, you were mentioning a couple of them. The week one, week two, there's some really good games. I mean, Houston and Texas Tech are playing again. They played, I think, in, in uh, either Dallas or, or Houston last year, but in like the NFL stadium. And this year they're playing actually in Lubbock. So that'll be fun because that's going to be a future conference matchup. Arizona State's going to be at Oklahoma State this year in week two, which is a very rare. I don't feel like we ever see Arizona State playing Big 12 teams, so that's pretty cool. And then you get Texas Tech at NC State, which is awesome. And I could get even deeper. West Virginia and Virginia Tech playing this year, too, is really cool because that's in Blacksburg, Virginia. You know the game I've got my eye on? Oklahoma at Nebraska. Nebraska, with yeah. all their close losses last year. Casey Thompson at quarterback, the transfer from Texas, who was electrifying at times last year. Oklahoma with a new coach. Put the Sooners on upset alert. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah, I no, I totally agree. I think Oklahoma only won by seven when they played in Norman last year. So that was a really close game. One of the several close losses Nebraska had that we've talked about a, a few times on this show uh, but getting them at home and, and a potential, like, I guess, step back year with the new new coach, like you mentioned, like, who knows? Nebraska might jump up and get OU. Yep, I could see it. All right, Jackson, any uh, parting words for our show tonight? Uh, no, no parting words. Uh, just uh, excited for me getting one day closer to my first Smoky Hill River Festival, which is coming up here in a few days. So, uh I'm excited to, now that I, I know exactly what I'm getting into. It's going to be fun here. What's it start? Thursday? Yep. Thursday's the festival jam. The actual festival itself with the arts and the vendors, they're all there Thursday, but everything kicks off Friday morning in terms of being able to get into the park for all that. But festival jam Thursday night is uh, it, it's, it's the biggest event, I would say, definitely every year at the festival. So a great way to get it started here in a couple of days. We will have another edition of In the Zone between now and then tomorrow. Join us at 515 here on KSAL.